Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Folklands, created, written and presented by Tim Downey and Justin Chubb. Episode 9, Serpent Tales. Hello, my name's Justin Chubb and together with fellow writer-performer Tim Downey, we're off around the UK exploring the nation's rich and often eerie folklore. Inspired by the 1973 Reader's Digest Folklore, Myths and Legends of Great Britain, a favourite tome from childhood. In today's episode, we venture down to West Sussex on the trail of a legend specific to the area, the Knucker Hole. Notoriously bottomless pits of water inhabited by monstrous serpents or dragon creatures. Along the way, we meet up with Dr Paul Quinn, Senior Lecturer and Director of the Chichester Centre for Fairy Tales, Fantasy and Speculative Fiction at Chichester University, who joins us on a muddy ramble and a fascinating discussion about the origins of many fairy tales and the changing landscape of our relationship to those childhood stories, amongst many other myth-related themes. Then we head off to the sleepy outskirts of Liminster, to meet local couple Ray and Mike in search of our second knucker hole of the day and to take in a wonderful stained glass window depicting the fearsome dragon of the pool and the ancient tomb of its supposed dragon slayer. But before we head off on our journey, to get us in the mood, here is a reading from Bram Stoker's gothic classic, The Lair of the White Worm, performed by actor Matt Lewis most famous for his role as Neville Longbottom in the Harry Potter movies, as well as numerous appearances in top TV shows such as Death in Paradise, Ripper Street and Happy Valley. In Mercian tongue, 
it was the lair of the white worm. And this needs a word of explanation. In the dawn of the language, the word worm had a somewhat different meaning from that in use today. It was an adaptation of the Anglo-Saxon worm, meaning a dragon or snake. Or from the Gothic, worms, a serpent. Or the Icelandic, ormer, Or the German, worm. We gather that it conveyed originally an idea of size and power, not as now in the diminutive of both these meanings. Here, legendary history helps us. We have the well-known legend of the Worm Well of Lampton Castle, and that of the Laidly Worm of Spindleston Hugh near Bamborough. In both these legends, the Worm was a monster of vast size and power, a veritable dragon or serpent, such as legend attributes to vast fens or quags where there was illimitable room for expansion. A glance at a geological map will show that whatever truth there may have been to the actuality of such monsters in the early geologic periods, at least there was plenty of possibility. In England there were originally vast plains where plentiful supply of water could gather. The streams were deep and slow and there were holes of abysmal depth where any kind and size of antediluvian monster could find a habitat. In places which now we can see from our windows were mud holes a hundred or more feet deep. Who can tell us when the age of the monsters which flourished in slime came to an end? There must have been places and conditions which made for greater longevity, greater size, greater strength than was usual. Such overlappings may have come down even to our earlier centuries. Nay, are there not now creatures of a vastness of bulk regarded by the generality of men as impossible? Even in our own day, there are seen the traces of animals, if not the animals themselves, of stupendous size. Veritable survivals from earlier ages, preserved by some special qualities in their habitats. So we're on our adventures again. The sun is really shining. We've been so lucky because it's been torrential floods and rain for days on end. But today, the gods are smiling on us. And we are heading down to Binstead and Liminster in West Sussex to the Knucker Hole. The Knucker Hole of Binstead and Liminster. Very excited. Do you know much about knuckers? The Reader's Digest book calls it the Knuckler Hole. Oh. Strangely. Apparently the word is an Anglo-Saxon word, nicar or nicaras, which is also in Beowulf as a beast, a serpent. I imagine as well these are probably similar to like Kelpies. Yes. In the same kind of bestiary. Those water horse, water creatures that kind of steal away people. You get too close to the knucker hole, you're going to get dragged in. Yeah. These are supposed to be incredibly deep holes and very cold, so they don't freeze over in winter and they don't dry up in summer. They are absolute constants. I imagine something like the cenotes in Mexico are quite similar, like they're freshwater holes. 
but very, very dangerous. That might be the secret passage from what was a nunnery to the church, right next to where the Nucker Hall is. And there was a thought that maybe the legend had been created to keep soldiers around the time of the conquest away from where these religious people were. A Scooby-Doo kind of way of keeping people away from this haunted, dangerous place. It's very, very deep, probably around 30 foot deep in places, mm. and very sheer sides, full of reeds and all that kind of stuff, that once you're in, you couldn't get out. You'd just be clawing at the sides. Yeah. So I'm imagining as well there must be a tale of the knucker that then lives in the hole that drags the unsuspecting child or victim down into the hole. So then I started reading about the Lambton Worm. Do you know about the Lambton Worm? Yes, I do know about the Lambton Worm. So this was Lambton Castle. The legend goes in the Middle Ages, Lord Lambton, ah, Wormley. Wormley, just as you you begin the Lambton Worm. Good Lord, there we are. There's some sort of little ley line running through our conversation. Yes, so the Lambton Worm, Middle Ages... Lord Lampton's son of the castle of Lampton, near a place called Penshaw Village, County Durham. The wild and reckless youth fishing on a Sunday finds a very strange worm-like creature in the river and cuts it in half. The thing reforms itself like a worm. He chucks it down into a well near the castle, forgets about it jump cut to several years later, he's become a very reformed character, a knight, and has gone off to the Crusades in the Holy Lands. Seven years later, he returns to the area, and during his absence, the worm has grown into a gigantic, monstrous creature and ravaged the area, devouring people, cattle. Whenever they have attempted to kill this thing, they slice bits off of it and it rejoins, just like the worm. So when he returns, he decides, I must defeat this creature. He goes to a witch to ask her advice. She tells him, put on razor blades on your armour because every night after the worm has done its ravaging of the land it coils itself three times around Lambton Hill now known as Worm Hill renamed if you put razor blades on your armour the worm will wrap itself around you and thus it will be defeated but the payment for this is that the first thing that greets you after your victory you must slay anyway He follows her advice, attaches razors to his armour, has a furious battle with the Lambton Worm, which, as predicted, coils itself around him to try and crush him to death, but in doing so, severs itself into multiple parts and is then swept away from the river, defeated. The young knight sounds his bugle to announce that he has been victorious. And his father, who has been instructed, when he hears the bugle sound, to send a hound down to greet his son, forgets this and runs down himself to greet him. The son is supposed to kill the first thing that he sees, but in fact, he can't bring himself to kill his own father. 
and the witch then lays a curse on the family. After that, the Lambton family came to violent and horrible ends. Ooh, that's and a great story. That is the story of the Lambton Worm. stranger about that that's my youngest daughter's reading book i found it in her bag the other day a little, very small kids version of the lambton worm how bizarre still aren't the van. good lord right we're going through a village green and there's the smoldering embers of a bonfire this is beautiful we've just passed a village pond this is lovely isn't it where are we do you know i don't know I was so wrapped up in that story, I actually have completely forgotten where we are. Chiddingford. It's rather pagan seeing the embers of a bonfire smouldering away. Because last night, of course, our listeners won't know, but last night was the 5th of November. Bonfire night. Remember, remember. I forgot. I love a firework night. and uh, So we actually went to two, but they couldn't get the bonfire lit on the first one. The rain was so torrential... They actually brought out a flamethrower <laughs> to try and burn the oak branches. It was just became like this chimney of oak smoke just pluming out and just would not light. Whereas the one last night, I think they'd learned and had placed a great deal of accelerant. That was absolutely soaring. The crowd did actually have to take a few steps back. Well, I was tempted to try and go to Lewis. I am down in Sussex some of the time. I haven't actually been to the Lewis parade yet. Well, we should probably both go next year. Love to, love to. I had a friend many moons ago who was part of the one of the Lewis bonfire committees. But oh, it just sounds great. Yes, and I was reading about that actually because the derivation of it is that actually a lot of Protestants were burned to death in the middle of Lewis. It's very anti-Catholic traditionally. I think they still probably parade burning crucifixes upside down and things like that. It's quite hectic. Effigies of the Pope. They still burn effigies of the Pope, I believe. And every year they have a sort of celebrity effigy for the bonfire. I think it's been Boris Johnson and Liz Truss and all kinds of people. I don't know who it was this year. If it ain't broke, don't fix it in that respect. so there's no one around. Mine was worse because mine was the first week back at school. So I was looking forward to my birthday and dreading it at the same time. A curse. That is pretty bad. So we're now in the South Downs National Park. Oh, yes we are. And no sign of floods yet, which I'm very, 
very happy about. It looks nice and dry, actually. It does. But we have donned Wellington boots just in case. We may be dragged into the knucker hole by some terrible beast. Of course, I can't run in wellies. I've just seen a bright red autumnal tree by Christmas Cottage. I mean, come on. I mean, that's as idyllic as it gets, surely. It's a lovely part of the world. I don't really come down this way. My son lives down in East Sussex, but I'm not often in West Sussex. But I have been known to walk the downs with a dog. That's the only way to walk the downs, surely. Yes. Dog at heel. Dog, well, not really at heel. Running madly. Shouting for it across the downs. Come back! Biscuit! Biscuit! (laughs) Oh, God, no! You've been there. You must have seen me. I think I must have seen you. Yes, yeah, so it's a Monday morning, early November. I suppose this is a little bit of a continuation of our meeting with Christopher Hadley and the Piers Schonk legend of dragons. Well, it's more of a serpent, perhaps. Yes, more of a water serpent, but appears very differently. That seems to be very land-based. Mm. This is most definitely water-based. And there's a few of these knucker holes around. It's very much a, oh, really? um, a Sussex thing. It doesn't really appear anywhere else in the country. Worms and dragon-like creatures appear, but not like this. So around this area, and it must be, again, geological as to have these formations of these wells. So there's one in, as we say, Binstead, one in Liminster, and there's a couple of others that are sort of dotted around. Mm. But that's it. So in total, there's probably around six or seven of these. And that's it, and you won't find them anywhere else. So it is very much of the area. They're supposed to be bottomless. I mean, presumably they're not bottomless pits, but springs rising from the holes, possibly, as well. There's a legend that I was reading where they tied six bell ropes together and lowered them down and it still didn't reach the bottom of the knucker hole. That's a deep hole. And there's a pub called the Six Bells. They might have been to the pub first, we don't know. And then drunkenly decided, I've got a very good idea, Ted. Let's take them down. You're in no fit state to go off in that belfry. Come on, I'll be great. (laughs) Warren, not again. Not the bell rope thing again. Not this again. You've already lost three. We're heading first to Binstead. So this is the Binstead Knuckerhole, and we are going to be meeting Dr. Paul Quinn, who is Head of Folklore at Chichester University. So if anybody can tell us a folklore tale about the Knucker, I am pretty sure it's it's him. And the great thing about this this particular Knuckerhole is a lot of them have been, I think, cordoned off because of danger of falling in etc and this one is quite venerated so they've really made a feature of it and from what i've seen is there are carvings around the hole all sorts so it's a real it's a working knucker hole if such a thing exists i have no idea how these things are created but it must be geological something to do with the whatever formation sandstone maybe or i don't know lime no idea that have created these, I guess, like sinkholes that are then filled, you know, tapped into a spring and then filled. But yeah, it's unique to the area, so you won't find them anywhere else apart from here. Maybe chalk again. I mean, certainly on the sort of Eastbourne, Wilmington area, the chalk hills and the long man of Wilmington, which 
I've also scaled many, many times with and without dogs and with children. That's very similar topographically to Uffington in the way that the hill is actually sort of ridged and formed. I don't know if it is man-made, but certainly that part of the downs over to the east is chalk. I don't know whether they are one sort of escarpment of chalk that runs the entire way across the downs. Talking about chalk hill figures, did you read recently that they've just discovered a new one? No. There's um, a stag. I think it might be around this part of the world. I can't quite remember, but they've just discovered that there was a stag put onto the side of a hill. They think sort of late Edwardian period. And they've just kind of rediscovered it and are now re-chalking it. Always come to me for your the most up-to-date chalk hill figure news. Recently, on the news, they were showing groups of local people re-chalking the Uffington horse. Lots of local people were up there with chalk, just widening some of the lines which, over time, presumably just erode downwards and become thinner. Does that look? More embers. Yes. More bonfires. There's a man with no top on raking the fire in quite a pagan way. That's the vibe I'm definitely getting from down here. Topless, Topless. November. Pagans? I don't like it, Justin. I don't like it one little bit. No. We're probably going to break down now. Don't say that. Why would you say that? <laughs> if we do, then I'm entirely blaming you and the pagans. safe in his hands. Maybe not with some of the substances. Regaling us with tales with how he wrote all the songs for the Beatles. Be entertaining as the Novocaine kicked in. He was there with the Beatles when they went to see the Yogi. And in fact, he did allegedly teach them a chord progression that Bert Jansch had taught him, which then became the basis of quite a few Beatles songs like While My Guitar Gently Weeps. This is one kind of bluesy folk sequence of descending chords that cover all of these different songs. That is very interesting. I like a bit of Donovan. One of my favourite albums, in fact, is HMS Donovan. Do you know this one? I don't know that one, no. It's very lovely. It's a double album, beautiful artwork, and he puts music to Lewis Carroll and lots of Walter Delamere poems... It's sort of a children's album and some of them are original songs that he's written but they're sort of nursery rhymes and poems. It's really beautiful. I'll have to look into that. Lord of the Reedy River, one of his loveliest songs about someone who falls in love with a swan. As one does. Not sure what the RSPB's take on this would be. Swan love. Yeah. It's not much talked of. 
it, it isn't. It isn't much mentioned. Going through a very lovely forest land, woodland. Fittleworth. Fittle. I think that's a nice word. It's like Lewis Carroll in Jabberwocky where he puts two things together. So fit and little. This could be fittle. Fittle. If you're feeling a little bit fit. Yeah. I've been feeling a bit fittle of late. Oh. Well done, Derek. Sandy Lane. You may be right about the sandstone, actually. It looks quite sandstone. If you look at the walls... You're right. I'm not seeing flint, which is probably more associated with chalk. Where there's chalk, there's flint. Where there's muck, there's brass. We're about 15 minutes away from destination. Doesn't look like too much localised flooding. We're in, I think we're in good shape. Perfect day again. Glorious. The crunch of leaves. That bright, lemony... Coloured sunlight yeah. through the trees. Oh, and we can see the misty hills, the downs, with trees leading off into the distance. Oh, I think I've just run over a dead badger. Welcome to the country. That would make a nice supper. Of- not in the way that was left. That's not a fresh kill. That's that's been there a while. Oh, maturing. Maturing quietly. Gypsies eat hedgehogs, roast them on a fire. And I heard as well that they wrap them in clay. And then they pull out the clay and it removes the spines. I'm not condoning this action, of course. No. Probably delicious, like a sort of feral McDonald's. Much like that Darwinian thing where they were bringing back all those giant turtles from the island. Yes, and they were delicious. And they were unbelievably delicious. (laughs) So they just ate them all. I wonder if it is the same with the hedgehog. It's unbelievably delicious, but you keep it to yourself. Whole species wiped out just by purely being delicious. The dodo, as well, was allegedly also coupled with the fact it couldn't really move very fast, so you could probably wrestle a dodo to the ground. But I think, in fact, they were made extinct by the rats that came off the ships that arrived at Mauritius, and it was the rats that went and ate the eggs. Can you tell me more about kelpies? The water horse, yes. Well, they're Scottish, and they appear more in the islands. There's those very famous Kelpie statues just by the, I think it's the Clyde, the two big silver horse heads. They are said to come out of the waves and steal your cattle or your children and then drag them back. But there's also that dual thing of the seal people. Selkie. Selkies. That's it, exactly that. They're called Selkies, where the seals will come ashore, remove their skins and become people. And if you hide the skin, then you can marry them or Mm. keep them on land. Sort of mermaid myth, really. And there's variations of that. As you drift towards Cornwall, there's sort of more mermaid things. And there are probably uh, similar myths in different countries, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Daedalus, just off the Cape of Good Hope, there's quite a well-documented sighting by Captain McKay, McQuay, spelled with a Q, and quite a few of his crew had a sighting of a 20-foot sea serpent travelling allegedly at 24 miles an hour. What's interesting about that one is that it's multiple people. And, you 
you know, reasonably recent. Well, there's the Essex Serpent as well that was made famous by the book. Sarah Perry, yes. Obviously based on a true, well, true in inverted commas, tale of a particular serpent. But there's a lot of serpents around Essex. And I think maybe that has to do with the big eel industry. Mm. So those eels would travel from the Sargasso Sea and they would go up the estuary into this one particular place. And all the eels, apparently, in the world spawn in the Sargasso Sea. That's the only place they do. So maybe there's some tale because of the eels. Why would you leave the Sargasso to come... I mean, Essex has its charms. Absolutely, absolutely. But it's a funny place to go when you've kind of got Miami very close. Yeah. And the Caribbean and probably lots of other lakes and stuff like that. But no, no, no. Essex. Maybe they favour a cooler water. But also um, fresh water. To go from saline to fresh. The mystery of the eel. That's a whole episode in itself. It is. Watch this space. And I come from Guernsey where there are a lot of very large conger eels, quite scary-looking creatures. I've never seen one while swimming, but you wouldn't want to meet a conger eel. They're pretty savage. No, you would not. I did not know that about Guernsey. Conger Mm. eels in Guernsey. Well, in the sea, not on land. (laughs) Obviously. Walking around buying houses or anything. So it's slightly more open country now. Very excited. Every time we go on our expeditions, I get a little butterfly in my stomach may just be not having enough breakfast. It's extremely exciting. Like the chances of coming to a knucker hole in West Sussex. At the back of my mind, since early teens, I would say, and coming on expeditions to see my grandparents in Gloucestershire, driving through 70s countryside, rainy expeditions, getting lost, my parents arguing over map directions museums and castles and things you end up going to always always wanted to cross britain and explore stone circles castles haunted places so this really is the culmination of a life's ambition i'm completely with you on that yeah ever since exactly those kind of things day trips out with your parents going to some stately home in the rain some blasted circle think god why are we here but it just seeps in. It gets you. It does. And you then suddenly go, do you know what? I want to go back to Corfe Castle again. Oh, God. I want to love Corfe Castle. Well, you could literally just scramble all over it. You, yes. could, you could just climb up the battlements with sheer drops on either side. Yeah, 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 that's fine. You can go and do that. The last time I went was in the early 90s, and I stayed in a pub virtually opposite the castle. But behind the bar was hanging the devil's head, basically. This carving of a horned man's face. Really, really eerie. When I asked the barman, who did this? What is it? He said, it's a piece of driftwood. It's just a piece of driftwood. No one's done anything to it. Wow. And we were staying in this inn. And it was fantastically eerie and scary. I wonder if it's still there, this head, or if anyone else remembers it. So this is Binstead? This must be the outskirts of Binstead, yeah. It's just a fiddle place. It's a fiddle place, exactly. Oh, the worst thing. Turning off onto a dual carriageway. Right. I'm going! Oh! The fear! It's a bit of a shock after all those lovely sleepy lanes and villages. I was not expecting. It reminds me of... I was watching Requiem to a Village 
which is a very lovely film made in 1975, only last night, and it's sort of about an old village in Suffolk that is under threat and about to change, and there are sort of shots of biker gangs going down these roads, encroaching on this sleepy village. It's a really beautiful piece, actually, with fantastic, quite choral and Britain-esque music by David Fanshawe. Available on the BFI player. Some great images. Things you don't kind of expect. It's like part documentary, part scripted piece. Have you seen Arcadia? Very, very similar. So it's like montage. Yes. Sequence. And and the soundtrack is by someone, I want to say Johnny Greenwood. Very likely. The Radiohead chap. That's right, yeah. And it's very similar to that. And I imagine they have borrowed greatly from Requiem for a Village. Well, we're, we're, we're here. We're here. Instead, is, this is the pub. This is the pub. So it's a little half-timbered pub. Yeah. It has a sign with the Uffington White Horse, but it's actually called the Black Horse Inn. We're here. There are the carvings. It's a pan-like godman figurine that's been carved by the knucker hole. These are the other knucker holes. There's one in Liminster, Stompington, Worthing and Lansing. They are the ones. There's an old Binstead myth. The Binstead Pond, now known as the Madonna Pond, is bottomless. The Beast of Binstead, (gasps) another black dog and a black rabbit. Oh, I'd like to see a black rabbit. I'd like to see a black rabbit. Hopefully with piercing red eyes. Oh, and the myth of a witch who screams as she spins at the spinning wheel cops in Binstead as well. Oh, my God. Screaming witch and black rabbits. Not on a Monday. Closed Mondays. Not on a Monday. <laughs> yeah, go and, go and get to it on a Monday, though. That's, that's, that's a definite. Oh, right, this so. could be our man. Yeah. We're not green, gents. We, we are, are. not green. I've never been accosted with that before. <laughs> I've never been. <laughs> that is a first. So, our friend has arrived. Dr. Quinn. So uh, great to meet you. Lovely to meet Good you. to meet you. Whereabouts have you come Crawley, from? Crawley, south of the top of the county. That's what they found the first iguanodon was in Crawley. Really? Mm. Yeah. So there's something odd going on around dragons in Sussex and snakes. The most famous one is just north of here up in St. Leonard's where it's the Sussex Serpent where you do actually have a proper text written about it. Really? In the 17th century. This is all oral. There's nothing recorded about this at all until the 19th century. And it's, it's, it's speaking to locals. The Sussex Serpent, there's a proper text about it. So there's something different going on with that. It's in St. Leonard's Forest, which is much bigger at that point. So it's the Sussex Serpent or the Horsham Dragon is the text title from Mm. 1614. And it it kills cattle, is the main thing. It mentions Faygate as well, so it's got a a large stretch of territory. There must be a new book out on Sussex folklore. I just caught a bit on BBC Sussex about it last week, where they were claiming that the story might be put around by smugglers. I'm not sure that's right, though, because it's too far inland, and I can't think which river the smugglers have been using. And it's very early got an illustration as well so it's brilliant so I did a workshop in my daughter's school yeah. and they were doing knights and medieval dragons so I put the picture up we used to do it when we did A-level study days you always get boys very interested in, in the picture so when we did this about five years ago we had the, these two boys clearly very into their fantasy sitting on their own from the rest of the group and they got very into describing this dragon and then the text says it looks like it's trying to grow wings so it could be a baby dragon and it leaves this trail after it. So we are thinking more snake-like. Whereas in my daughter's class, one of her classmates went, it looks like a crocodile. 
So it's a question of where all these serpents come from. Is something coming up in the water? Mm. Because Sussex now we think about in terms of commuter towns yeah. and like the dialect is gone. So you, the, the best place you used to catch a bit of the Sussex dialect was if you ever got the train down to Chichester, one of the inspectors would always say Chidister, and that's your Sussex dialect word. So I'm Sussex born and bred, but I haven't got a dialect word other than Twitten. It's gone, also because we're an immigrant family, so it's a, a weird mixture. But there's something around snakes in Sussex but the earlier periods the concern around Sussex was the coastline so once you hit the reformation the government are very concerned about that coastline and indeed there is a plan to invade England through the south coast and to stage it at Petworth so 4,000 troops at Petworth and they would march up and meet a much larger um, Spanish and imperial force in the north of the country and so that's why you get the smugglers as well because the rivers can bring you much closer up to the county than you would originally the roads are so bad mm. so the Assizes never come further south than Horsham until the 18th century because the judges are afraid of getting trapped in Sussex because of the, the roads are terrible because you, you've, got, you've got an iron industry in Sussex as well because Sussex is a major industry a major industrial site in the earlier period up until the 18th or 19th century and we tend to forget that that heavy industry is here but you can see it in all the names so if you came down the main road today and past Hammerpot Hammerpot you're using ironworks and in the east of the county in particular but the, because the carts taking the iron up to London are so heavy they're destroying the roads and you can see the roads around here are terrible there's only when you get the toll roads in the 18th century that the roads get any way decent north to south east to west is still carnage you know it's very difficult to go east to west in a hurry because the a27 is so bad and so sussex can get cut off quite easily but you've got this idea of it being this kind of unknown territory you've got a lot of recusants in this half of the county so over in obviously around arundel and around cowdery and east sussex is far more protestant but you get a, a group of catholics around battle as well which kind of agitates the yeah. locals and so a lot of these stories how far you know, has something up in, up in the river and it's been seen is it an eel or something and you just is it a way snake or dragon becomes a way of explaining something that's otherwise inexplicable whereas the knockers that's a different thing there's something else going on there entirely I think from the, from the Sussex serpent so we've got two different types of dragon in Sussex Why is that so different? Why is that such a standout? It's a water dragon for one thing, yeah. whereas the Sussex serpent is living in the land. And it's the etymology of the word nucker, I think, is the clue to why we have it here. So nucker probably comes from the Anglo-Saxon nicker. 
And of course, Sussex is the kingdom of the South Saxons, the last place to convert to Christianity. So again, it's got this sense of difference and, and, and wildness. But if you look at the etymology of Nika in other um, European languages, it's always got this association with water and underground. A Nika is a, a water monster. Grendel in Beowulf is a Nika. And there's that sense of a portal going down into hell. So that's why the knocker holes being bottomless is significant, I think, because it's an idea that you can go down into hell from yeah. that. So Nicker, old Nick, old Nick is the devil, obviously. So is there that link there as well? Okay, In yeah, Scandinavia, the Nicker is it's a water horse. Yeah. So it's like a Kelpie. There is one of those potentially in Rye as well all of this stuff the source is always Jacqueline Simpson's book on Sussex she's your go-to for Sussex but where she's gone to is things like county magazines or those 19th century dialect histories so if you look on databases like historical text I mean this is an easy one because it's a single word and you get four hits for Nucker K-N-U-C-K-E-R and it's all 19th century Mark Anthony Lower who starts the Sussex Archaeological Society He's also one of the founding members of the Lewis Bonfire Society because he's deeply anti-Catholic, very low-church Protestant, but really into local history. Fantastic stuff. Because it all links, you know, even the word, as you're saying, the derivation of that word and how it shoots off into different places. It's like a Sussex Kelpie, but it's different. It's exactly as you say. It's a snake-like creature rather than a horse-like creature, how it appears. And how that changes is fascinating. There's a weird thing about snakes in Sussex anyway because a lot of snake and serpent images in, in churches around here. Everything's coming. Oh it's God, just going to be got loads Everything of traffic going past. Hopefully going to move on. It's reversing now, yeah. that's good. This is the equivalent of all your cars. It, it is. I mean, it, it, we, yeah, we forget that with Sussex. I mean, su- some of the weaponry on the Armada might be from Sussex. There's an irony in that they're fighting their own weapons. This is overproduction and then they have to put a ban on them selling it. So there's a kind of early modern... Uh, arms trade going on there as well. Sussex is, is an interesting county in terms of its history and how we kind of lost that now because it is just, can I get a train to London? <laughs> essentially, yeah. essentially, yeah. yeah. And so true. these small villages, they're off the main road and they're not near the station. They kind of retain that history and that kind of deep history. But it is interesting that it's not written down. Lower has to go out and collect in those magazines. So in the 19th century, you get the dialect societies, you get the folklore society, you get the OED even is in a version of this. So you know, the major fairy tale collections in Britain are late. They're much later than, say, in Germany. Because, of course, with the Grimms, they're producing their collections of the fairy tales. 1812 is the first edition, and it's very much part of this German nationalist project after the end of the Napoleonic War and a sense of if you want a unified peoples, they have to have a language and a law and a shared history. And that's really where the grim stories come from. Mm. You have to go into the 1870s, 80s and 90s here and you get Andrew Lang and you get Jacobs are collecting stories of the British Isles and they look at other materials as well. So it's, it's relatively late. And even you know, looking in an Irish context where there's still a, a belief in the fairy as a creature and it's a far more malevolent figure, this kind of fey creature... Where did you grow up in Sussex? Crawley. Okay. We don't have a folk. No, no. Well, it's a more interesting town than people give it credit for because then they tend to think it's below average university education and it's one of the new towns. So it's built on these bucolic villages like Ifield and it's industrial because of the, the airport or the industrial estate around the airport but actually the Crawley Museum has done really good work on looking into the history of Sussex so like religious controversies one of the Sussex Martyrs is from around that area so I mean 
the man who killed Sarah Payne, he was from Crawley, and he lived in Martha's Avenue. And of course, then the press picked up on this, and because there's a big mosque at the end of Martha's Avenue, they went, "Oh, that's why it's called Martha's." It's nothing at all because you've forgotten the history of martyrdom in this country, and that's why it's called Martha's Avenue. But the Iguanodon is, is the big one, I think. The original editor of Punch is from Crawley, and so his daughter is probably the model for Alice in the original illustrations from Alice in Wonderland because Tenor, who does those illustrations, he does the illustrations of Punch. And so if you look at his deeply, deeply anti-Irish cartoons, you can see similarities between that and Alice. So it's quite an odd experience then going back to Alice and you see these cartoons. So yeah, the the daughter is probably the model for it and she hated the dress she had to wear. Um, And one of the major (laughs) gossip writers... she did actually model... She did. Well, it's yellow, of course, in the original. It becomes blue in the film because blue works better on film, seemingly, than than yellow, but it's originally yellow. And the iron industry is up there as well. I was just going to ask if you growing up in Sussex had spoken to you know people in their 90s in pubs and things no, and got no, a sense no, of actual oral folklore no no I got into this I was doing a, a postdoc at Sussex and I developed a semen out of, of strange tales because of the interconnections between the iron industry and religious controversy in these tales so in say East Sussex there's a giant near Hastings, the the breed giant and obviously he eats children because that's what giants do and so the children of breed get sick of this and they get a big vat and they put beer in it and they poison it and he drinks this and he collapses on this bridge and they cut him in half with a wooden saw it's it's a wooden saw he specified and so he falls into the bridge and you can still hear his cries on the bridge Simpson then picks up this idea and, and I've developed it further. The figure is named, he's one of the Goddard family and the Goddards were recusants, they hadn't converted to Protestantism and so you get this sense of child consumption, blood supping, cannibalism you find a number of these stories and if you go back you tend to find the family suspected of being recusant and so you get the idea of transubstantiation as a form of cannibalism and therefore these people are cannibals. The Scotney family, they're called wild they're Catholics. Lunsford, who is the governor of the Tower of London at the outbreak of the Civil War and is a deeply suspect figure as far as the parliamentarians are concerned because they think that he'll turn the guns on them. He'd taken a shot at someone years earlier and has this reputation for wildness. He may not be Catholic, but because of the conspiracy theories around the royal court at that point, anyone associated with Charles I and particularly Henrietta Maria are viewed as crypto-Catholics. There's an illustration of him then as this giant figure looming over the land, but there's a ballad about him that he eats children. So these type of figures, you then go back and you find that there is something else lurking there. As a side note, though, I was told when I was down in... So I did a part of this project. I was, I was working with Hastings Museum and Art Gallery. So I was doing a, a talk, and this really elderly man who'd been the chair of their arts association he had a story from someone that when they'd excavated the goddard tomb in the start of the 20th century there was indeed a body there and it was bigger than usual my friend was with me and he was a very eminent anesthetist and he said well could it be that there was some type of growth hormone or some type of medical condition but again because you didn't have the terms for it you had to go for it's a giant they like a giant though because of course giants are biblical and therefore you've got that proof you know there's giants in genesis there's giants in revelation of course so bevis of hampton who's the warden of arundel and his sword is in their collection the smorgloy is so very tolkien-esque it's five 
foot ten inch sword is in their collection. So it has to be a giant Someone's sword, getting, surely. No one else could call yeah. that. Yeah. And um, <laughs> he's buried in a mound out there on Arundel. He could step over into the Isle of Wight because he was so big. But then, you know, your explanation for the Isle of Wight then, in Sussex terms, is that the, the devil tries to flood Sussex and he's digging there one night and either St Dunstan or some wise woman down on the downs puts a candle in the window and then she puts a pan in front of it and then reveals it so that he thinks it's dawn and so the devil flies off and as he's jumping away, this sod of earth falls off his hoof and that's where the Isle of Wight comes from. It's a lump of soil that falls off of the devil's hoof. So, yes, yeah, Sussex is full of these kind of crazy stories which are often overlooked that's why the dialect societies and the folklore societies are so concerned in the 19th century because they think they're going to lose all this information so they go out and talk to people yeah. but it does mean when you're researching now you go back and you can only go that far kind of Andrew Hadfield's argument that how much of these stories are true or they're just based someone says something to someone who then wrote it down and then you're reading what was written down I mean folklore I suppose is all about community yeah. and how communities would have shared stories yeah. we've been to places where fields are named so there's mythology around everything when people have a local community yeah. and they have places they gather they have harvests they do together rituals and things where everything is about being in one locale yes. and now of course everything as you say we're in commuter world where people don't stay in the same place or they're not necessarily from that place is it just going to disappear well we've got this folklore map i don't know if you saw it when you found us on the website mm. and the idea was that a lot of people don't know this particularly younger people and so we're trying to get a project whereby we would look at particularly the new communities and how far then it becomes an act of integration that if you introduce the new communities and people who just don't know these things to these stories but then if you've got significant groupings so there's a large filipino community in the north of the county has that community brought their own stories with them and if you're then looking at a second generation does that then become a Sussex story and you can then put that story onto the folklore map and so then the local Sussex population learn about the new community's folklore while they learn about their own folklore and it becomes that kind of cohesion and a way of preserving the stories as well they blend yeah if there's a tale of a water dragon within a Filipino folklore and then does that get then laid over the yes. story and the story then changes and morphs yes. I guess because you can see that when I teach a model on fairy tales which obviously the fairy tale and the folklore it's an artificial distinction that's essentially a 19th century thing that separates the fairy tale from the folklore in the sense that the folklore you can do serious study on that and the fairy tale becomes for children yeah. but that's not the case and you can see a repeated story so say Cinderella there's a clear analogue for Cinderella in China in the 8th century and it's about foot binding or the idea of the door who puts on the father's arm and goes to fight for the father there's a fascinating story called there's two versions of it there's a Neapolitan version by Basili who gives us the original version of Sleeping Beauty well when the tabloids lose their mind over people talking about you shouldn't have the kiss in Sleeping Beauty and you get, you get all the usual things it's all gone woke they clearly don't know that originally there's a rape that the prince comes in and sees the sleeping princess and he has sex with her and then she has twins and the twins are feeding on and that's when the thread comes out. And so the kiss just becomes encoding for that. So they they kind of lose their minds without really realising why people are objecting to it. So there's uh, an interesting where uh, Constanza Constazo, where the daughter dresses as uh, male and goes off to fight for the father. But in the French version of it by... um, 
Catherine de Alwa. What's interesting, I haven't seen a version of it where when the daughter puts on the armour, the pronoun changes to he. And so it becomes a fascinating kind of trans story almost. And so there's a few of my students who've really latched onto this. But then another one, it's like Mulan. So is there some way of connecting Mm. those two Mm. stories? A lot of it's around trade. So if you look at Venice becomes a major place for the, the fairy tales. So, Straparola, because of, so of trade. Because Venice is a major trading site during the 15th century, and you get a, a meeting between East and West. Yeah. There's two arguments within the folklore society. These stories just appear from nowhere on their own, or you get diffusion. People carry the tales with them because they are a folk tale, or voke tale, as one of my students would insist on. Because, yeah, that's what the Grimms are doing. It's the tales of the people. Buried within that is a sense of a, of a unified German people. Whereas Sussex, it's, it's different. It's, it's far more localised, I think. But those links, I think, between the Kelpie... It's telling about the Anglo-Saxons here as well, of course. You know, That's where the word has come from. And then it just becomes a, a Sussex story. It's very localised to here, because it, it's here, it's uh, Lyminster, it's Worthing, it's something. So it's, a, it's very much a, a story about the Downs. And there's something geographically about the, the Nucker pools. come from well, dinosaur I mean, bones or it's, well you do have menageries in the earlier period so did something escape potentially did something come up the river because the rivers before the silting takes place and that's the other thing you get from the iron industry you get silting particularly in the east of the county so rye is the second richest town in Sussex at that point rye's economy is destroyed when the harbour silts up because they can't quite make the connection between smelting deforestation and silting. Michael Drayton, the poet, has got a vague idea about it because he does warn about this in Polyoberon. It's partly biblical. So, with the Liminster, Liminster Nucker, there are two versions of how that's killed. One is that the dragon, the Nucker, is killing livestock. In some versions, obviously, it kidnaps maidens because dragons are always taking maidens because there's always something about virginity in, in these stories. And so the, the king of Sussex puts out an appeal and a knight is coming by and he goes and kills the dragon and then he marries the the princess and that's partly I think St George, it's partly St Michael as well which of course would then connect with the knucker as Nick because in iconographical terms St Michael, you see the image of him crushing Satan the other version of course of how that particular knucker is killed is more prosaic actually and it is more of a Sussex version so that the mayor of Arundel puts out an appeal to deal with this knucker that's taken the livestock and it's a local man possibly from Wick one of the villages and he's variously called Jim Polk or Jim Puttock so Jim gets the pot of poison and he gets the dragon, the knucker, to eat the poison. It kills the knucker and he cuts the knucker's head off. And then Jim goes to have a drink to celebrate and then Jim manages to poison himself. So Jim dies as well. It's the unnamed knight well, is a pie, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, a pudding. And it could be Sussex eel pie because that's, you know, again, the eel connection there. So yeah. there is something going on in the county in terms of, of serpents and eels. And I think it might be to do with the rivers and stuff yeah. going up from the coast. Yeah. The medieval grave that they moved inside 
Lyminster Church. There's no inscription on it, it's worn away, but there looks like a sword and some bones, and it's meant to be the knucker's bones that it's lying across. Is it the same knucker going between the pools, is the thing, or is it multiple knuckers? It's, it's not quite clear. Yeah. But I suppose it, it, it's whatever you want it to be, it's whoever's telling the story, because you add to it then. Is there a suggestion of sort of chivalry and. With the knight version, yes. The damsel. Yes. With Jim Polk or Puttock, it's far more a kind of trickster figure. He's the everyman who can deal with the the dragon. He's fulfilling the knightly role, but then he dies. But because it's a mayor rather than the king, you don't have the possibility of Jim then marrying the princess, and therefore you don't get that kind of social disruption that you get in, say, something like uh, Puss in Boots, where Puss in Boots is the kind of trickster figure. Or in Charles Perrault's Hop on My Thumb, where you get a weird combination of Hansel and Gretel and Jack and the Beanstalk and Tom Thumb. The seven children, the smallest of them is... I just small, but presumably he's a dwarf, but he's a he's smart, so he outwits the giant, the ogre, in fact, it is, in a really horrible way where he tricks the ogre into killing the ogre's own children rather than his brothers. It's a really horrible image of the children having their heads pulled back and the knife going in. But he steals the ogre's money and he steals the ogre's boots and then he goes working for the King of France. And the, the joke is, but the joke is lost in the English translation, because Lang, I don't think, gets the joke, that he, he's earning money carrying messages to the front in the war with these magic boots. And then he earns money from the wives at court sending messages to their lovers. He doesn't earn nearly as much money taking messages to their husbands because they're more interested in contacting their lovers rather than their husbands. <laughs> then there's this bit where Perot goes, oh, but it's probably not true. Because he's realised, I think, that this it's not quite the chivalric figure. But again, he doesn't marry the princess. Similarly here, Jim kills the dragon and then dies in his moment of triumph. Jim Puttock yeah. is much more of the people yeah. kind of hero. Yeah. So that would be the one that you oh, yeah. probably told yeah. in the yeah. pub rather than well, the Sussex courtly court, that, tale. That whole we won't be drove thing going on there and they right. don't you know, they don't really go for kings in Sussex and that and you know what's the Lewis Bonfire celebrations on, on one level it's about we're, we're going to carry on doing this and it, it, it's a protest and it's kind of a, a constructed cultural memory of the Marian burnings the gunpowder plot and then of course they don't like the re-establishment of the Catholic hierarchy Lewis and his religion is, is really interesting so they don't like attempts to, to make the Anglican church look more Catholic so again that's a protest against the establishment mm. so there is I think when you transform the killer of the knucker from a knight into an ordinary villager and he uses his wits rather than his sword, you are pulling against that type of chivalric ideal. It's a far more 19th century thing anyway, I think, because that's, that seems to be the source for that version of it. That It's in a, I think, 1932 edition of the Sussex County magazine, but it was told by a man working on a hedge who'd heard it from someone else. So it's going back into the 19th century. Jim is a far more... 18th, 19th century Sussex figure who would deal with this type of thing rather than a knight coming along. You're saying Leonard, there's a well-established association between him and dragons that he, he kills this dragon and where the dragon dies you get particular flowers appearing. Uh, he's meant to be a crusader, so again, and, uh, but it's a knight, but it's, it's figuring it's kind of distant past, whereas Jim Puttock going for a drink after he's done it, that's the lives of the people who tell him the tale. Mm. Yeah. It's a far more democratic version of it, I think. We were chatting also about the lantern worm. Yes. Which has sort of these elements of 
I suppose it's a bit like a morality tale. Yes. Where there's this chap who's reckless and wild and he's not a good Christian. And yes. And then he goes off to the Holy Lands and comes back and defeats evil, which in a way maybe is also part of his nature of being, you know, pagan or yeah. whatever. And finding Christianity and then wins the sort of virtuous battle. Yes. So maybe there's sense of that with I, this I, I think so but you can see how it then changes over time where you move away from the need for that type of morality tale you'd want Jim not to die I think is a better version of it where Jim dying is kind of comes the heroic figure dying in battle and kind of a, a corruption of that so it's a sort of martyrdom that he dies almost from yeah poison because it is an odd thing isn't it's it? very odd I mean he drinks the beer and he rubs his hand across his face to take the foam off and the poison's still on his hand. So it kind of becomes tragic but also pathetic as well at the same time. The beer drinking is interesting because there's, there's a theory amongst some of the lowers group in the 19th century that beer drinking is a very Protestant thing. Wine drinking is for a feat foreign Catholics. Beer drinking is a very Protestant thing. So Jim would have to drink the beer. If he drank wine, that, that wouldn't work at all. It's tied to, I think, that the first Sussex martyr is a Dutch brewer who has a brewery in Brightholmstone, which is modern Brighton. And so you get the link between martyrdom and beer brewing and beer drinking. But again, it's a, it's a more democratic thing to drink beer than drink wine, I think. And it's still kind of going on, isn't it? You know, the, the real pub being where you have a beer and yep. the sort of gastro pub yep. being where you'd have a glass of red wine. Yep. Losing the folklore, yep. losing the roots of... Yep the community where people go to have a drink and talk to lots of generations of people. Yes, the real loss of what you... I mean, yeah, back, back to the question of the road. Sussex, I think, is like 72 words for mud. Oh, no. Dif- different ah. types of mud, you see, but it's an awareness of how important the land is to the people. What the mud would prevent you doing, prevent you travelling, but where are you going to farm, where are you going to plant, where are you going to graze your animals? Because a lot of this land is more for pasture rather than crops. So then you get a sense of the depopulated nature of the county or these pockets and again what do you do to pass the time in a pre-television age you tell stories yeah. you tell the stories about the land particularly if you never leave the land or the conditions prevent you leaving the land and so what's one of the things the mud stops you that so you've got lots of different words for mud do you have any oh, good, good um, I'll, I'll have to think now <laughs> Squarm, something Squirm. like that. It's partly on onomatopoeic. Yeah. It's yeah. what does the mud sound like when you're trying to squelch? Yeah, trying yeah. to pull your foot out. Yeah, that's more yeah. like you'll curse your way to <laughs> try and get your car to. But it's, it's the toll roads. Once they get the toll roads in, that's where you improve the roads. So around Crawley again, you get Northgate, Southgate, Tillgate. Tillgate's a corruption of Tollgate. North and Southgate tell you where the gates were. All the pubs around here, they've got uh, black animals in the title because Sussex is full of black animals which are ghostly or mysterious or dangerous. So black rabbits, black, black rabbits, horses. We were reading about that yeah, earlier. black dogs is a given, but the, the rabbits and the horses. And this is connected to witchcraft or familiar? Potentially. Or? That's the most obvious thing. Or ghostly horses. I mean, this snuck a hole down here there's meant to be a carriage that went into it and it never came out and the horses went into it so they get ghost horses from that type of thing you know, where, where, the, where the devil creates the Isle of Wight by the soil falling off his hoof you can see how that story changes from it's St Dunstan to just an old woman living on the downs that's yeah. similar to Jim taking over from the night is that sense of those stories shifting away from Saint's legend there's a number of t- stories about St Dunstan taking on the, the devil 
St. Dunstan was working in a, a forge and the devil was poking his nose in and so he gets the tongs and he grabs the devil on the nose. But I think as you become increasingly irreligious, then you yeah. move away from those type of saints like people. So it goes from aristocracy back to the people yeah, more. Yeah, because you know, religion is contentious in Sussex, so the, the saints will be associated with the Catholic past. But the sense of the devil is part of that, but it goes back further into a kind of pre-Christian past. Have you been to the Lewis celebrations? Oh, I, I ha- haven't, no. Uh, Catholic priests there do a, a no-popery lecture, K-N-O-W, which they do the day <laughs> after. I've given that twice, in fact. Yeah. Um, but I've, I've never ventured down into Lewis. My colleague says, you should do it once. They had trouble this year, I think, because of the weather. A cliff had to close the public section of their burning, but then I suppose Cliff is up the hill, so it probably was harder to get up to. Cliff, of course, is the hardcore one who wouldn't take down the no popery banners when they were asked to. They were sticking with the, the authentic anti-Catholic element of it. Yeah. Um, I've been through on the train when it's been happening, and even on the train, it's pretty hectic. Yeah. When I was studying there, you were always warned, uh, keep away, don't get, try and get the train that, that train. Yeah. They're quite small carriages. So we're heading down the lane yes. towards the Nuckahall. Yeah. And you've been here many times? No, we're relying on my student, actually, who's local. They've put up a marker with uh, their idea of what a Nucker looks like. Well, they've got the green man on top of it. But that, again, that's an interesting example of how these things are often constructs, because the green man as an idea really doesn't date before 1939. That's when the name appears, and then it's overlaid onto these images of this kind of green man-type figure that you find in churches. And folk always get very annoyed about the green man. Catherine Briggs as well, because she's so dominant in terms of folklore. But when you go back and look at her sources... She's done some very strange things to them, and so she's a sense in which she's completely misled two or three generations of people working on folklore that it's, it's constructed by her or her particular reading of the sources. But the green man as an image was in quite medieval... A- as an image is certainly there, but the idea of it is... No. There was a statue of the Virgin Mary put up, and then it was vandalised, and it was this... Oh, it must have been some type of coven came down to perform some type of ceremony. And I think it, the woman who put the statue up, it was for her mother, and she's quoted as saying, no, I think it was just a vandal, so I put a smaller one up. You expect that type of thing. You know, a lot of it, I think, comes from people watching things like The Wicker Man, yeah. folk horror. Gives an idea of what these villages are like. That's right. And they're a the hotbed of Satanism. And so the, the folklore plays into that. It's interesting how folk horror has become such a big, big thing again yeah. now, isn't it? Yeah. Conedor has Watson or Holmes say the smiling, sinister countryside, that they'd rather be in the city. And that sense of, again, isolation, cut off from transport, and you know, strange things can happen. And yeah. a lot of it, it's not strange at all. Or it's not strange if you're local. It's part of a tradition. But also the countryside being harsh, yes. brutal, yes. you know, people living very, very harsh lives yes. in the cold and the weather and not the cosiness of a city where there's probably just more civilization. And then you, know, you, you get the sense that these creatures can still be a, you know, kind of a, a belief and disbelief at the same time. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So now we're coming up to quite a beautiful little church. Norman? It's Norman or Saxon? Could, could be Saxon, couldn't it? Yeah. St Mary Binstead. Down a little bit of a muddy lane. Your department, the folklore study, is that the only university course that. No, so I did the work on Strange Tales of Sussex for my postdoc at, at Sussex, and then I was working at Chichester as well. And then my former colleague, Bill Gray, who founded the Folklore, it was Folklore Centre at that point, he had a massive stroke, really catastrophic stroke. And so I was asked to come in and take on some of the teaching, particularly the the fairy tale module, and then Bill died. And so I was kind of inherited the centre. At that point, we were the Sussex Centre for Folklore, Fairy Tale and Fantasy. But higher-ups went, oh no, these research centres all have to say Chichester. So we spent a long time working out what we wanted to call it. We dropped folklore. Probably that was a mistake. Um, but fairy tale and folklore, because my aunt was there the same thing. Gloucester are quite into this, so they've got their Open Graves project. And there's a fantasy centre up at Glasgow. But by and large, that's really who's got the actual organised centres. So very few, really. In this era of what the humanity's for and trying to stop people studying them and then if you've got the 18 or 19 year olds saying oh, I'm doing a module on fairy tale and the parents go well, what's the point of that but actually you get into discussions about etymology and about mm. history and about nationalism about ecology as well because the link with the land is crucial well as we become this very global world localised folklore and the idea of things that are specific to locations is much more endangered in a way isn't yes. it? Yes, D- Disney's the great enemy of that modern in fact we do spend a lot of time giving a kick into to Disney which on one level is, is fine it kind of codifies a particular version of the tale but you can see the kind of current frenzy around the live action remake of um, Snow White, the press and on Twitter they've decided they don't like it the actor playing Snow White, she's not enthralled to the previous version of it. Heaven for Fen, she's not white either. It seems to be the big issue for a lot right. of people on Twitter. Yeah. And they're not using dwarves. They're magical beings. What they yeah. don't realise, there's evidence to suggest that Hitler really, really loved the Disney Snow White. <laughs> it's one of his favourite films. Because what we tend to ignore with the Grimms is 
there's a real scene of anti-Semitism in the Greens. Yes. yes. And it's saying something about anti-Semitism in German society. Obviously, a thin line between nationalism and sort of fascism, and wanting to retain your sense of identity and this dangerous Hitlerian thing of well, we're this race and we want to keep our racial purity and all this stuff. So the Grimms, as they're working their way through the various editions, they make a conscious decision to remove French influence. But they cut out the French stories as far as they're able to. And the argument is it's because they lived in territory that was occupied by the Napoleonic forces. And they had worked for them. So it's kind of a weird, almost collaboration going on there. One of them is a librarian from Napoleon's brother. But that, of course, means he can continue his academic work. You can get access to those texts. And then after the Second World War, the Allied, when they're occupying Germany, they're not keen on the Grimms being taught or read because they seem to be linked with the Nazi regime. Anderson as well, because the Nazis use Hans Christian Anderson's stories to suggest some type of northern European white identity, shared identity. Anderson's not particularly looked on with much favour by the Allies in the immediate aftermath of the war. So you need something as disposable as a fairy tale becomes part of this wider concern around nationalism and a description of the other. I mean, you remember when John Stewart accused J.K. Rowling of anti-Semitism? It was in that weird bit around Christmas and New Year when the press had never got anything to write about, so they pick up on Annie's nonsense. And we were contacted by the Mail Online, could you comment on this? So we put a bit together and it didn't appear. So we've got a journal with the centre and I'm editor. I wrote this piece on it. John, John Stewart walked the story back fairly rapidly, but there, there is something about how the goblins who run the bank in the film version. My relationship with Harry Potter was different from a lot of people. I used to be in book selling, and so certainly from the fourth book on, it meant a lot of work yeah. lugging lots of boxes at the airport <laughs> as well. So you have to... Getting heavier and heavier. Fighting. You mustn't open the box. You'll get sacked if you open the box, particularly oh. when they kill Dumbledore. And so I didn't see the film until relatively late. And I looked at it, it's incredibly anti-Semitic image that you've got there of the goblin with the long nose associated with money. What were you possibly thinking of doing that? And it's different in the book. I checked the book. Tolkien does it as well. Tolkien's dwarves on one level are Jewish. In The Hobbit when they're trying to get back to the Lonely Mountain, that's about the diaspora. But then when Thor and Oakenshield gets back to the Lonely Mountain and he gets the Arkenstone, he begins to behave deeply, culturally ingrained anti-Semitic images about possession which you find with Gollum Gollum does the same thing and of course the, the name Gollum Golem, Golem. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so if yeah. you look at the Grimm's Rumpelstiltskin as a single figure obsessed with gold who lives on the margins of society he's clearly been excluded and so I, I wrote this piece you often find that these type of figures are used to describe otherness they're a way of excluding this figure from the people telling the story and, and that you can find this across so it, it's religious others it's racial others so Jack Zipes, who's a big name in folklore, fairy tale studies, he said, yeah, there's something to do there, and you should probably push on with that as an idea. So he's just produced a new version of Bambi, and his argument that Bambi is about the experience of Austrian Jews after the Nazis rolled in in 37, 38, yeah. it's encoding. It's a way of telling the tale when you can't tell the tale. So again, it's all back to this sense of you use the animals in this instance other creatures in more fantastical folklore to describe otherness and people who are separate from the tellers of the tale because that's largely what we're looking at here is whose tales is this the knucker is a sussex tale 
but it's also indicative of other peoples living in Sussex when you have the root for the word is Anglo-Saxon. It's interesting, though, how conscious writers are of whether they are intentionally racist or if they're drawing on longer traditions of different races and peoples. Certainly the point I was making that by this point goblin does have that usage but not everyone knows it has. So one of the German words that comes from Nika is for a goblin that lives in the mines. You've got a sense of a creature living underground. The satanic old Nick type associations. I I think the fact that it's bottomless and you can go down and it's got the the Nick at the start of it, I think that's underlined a lot of this, I think. And is there a sense that some of the stories were told to keep people away from dangerous places, the equivalent of the Deep Water 1970s advert? I think there is an element of that. That's what you tell your children. But, of course, the problem is children are thrilled by that type of thing as well, aren't they? Yes. And then you're back into folk horror. children particularly are fascinated by dangerous things and by mysterious things and part of the reason that probably all of us are interested in this material is because all of that stuff goes in very deep when you're young yes you're fascinated by the idea that there might be other creatures and things that exist and that the world is magical you're much closer to magic when you're young because you just believe things yes and people do tell you stories expecting you to take them on board and maybe the line between reality and fantasy is not clear and which is why you locate them in places like this they're far enough away you can believe those type of things will take place or like creatures in the wardrobe that's where the monsters live they're in the bed or they're under the wardrobe at home i did regularly check for narnia just in case because i guess that's quite a modern thing as well because then when people have wardrobes and beds maybe that's a way of bringing the folklore from the outside inside potentially because of course what you discover for anyone who hasn't read all of narnia and that's often the case that the wardrobe is made from a tree isn't it that you discover Mm. in the magician's nephew when he does the big prequel and which then throws up the question which order you read them in and so yeah the wardrobe is literally from the outside that's where the portal is brought into the house there's um, another book called Lilith by George MacDonald, which has a wardrobe, doesn't yes. it? And, which... and Lewis loves MacDonald. Well, MacDonald was local. He was in Arundel for a while. He was a preacher in Arundel for a couple of years. But because his congregation didn't think he was orthodox, they cut his stipend, and in the end he had to leave. Oh. And so he starts writing full-time to support himself, which Andrew Lang is the same. Lang had been an Oxford scholar, and because he married, he had to leave, and so he lives by writing for the rest of his life. MacDonald is kind of the forgotten man of that 19th century fantasy. Tolkien reads him but grows to really dislike him, whereas Lewis seems to remain a a fondness for him all his life. Lewis really likes Lilith. C.S. Lewis doesn't plagiarise, but he certainly borrows from quite a lot of other literature. Ian Esbitt, George MacDonald. Tolkien would tell you it's from the cauldron of story that it's bubbling away and that people come yeah. and take bits from it and they add to it. Because Tolkien's essentially a medievalist, an early medievalist, and in the medieval period, it's not the originality of the subject, it's what you do with existing subject matter, which shows your skill. Lewis is coming from that same tradition, I think. Lewis and Tolkien, they're great mates for a while and they seem to fall out. Tolkien doesn't like when Father Christmas turns up in... Like a little bit strange. It is a little odd. It is a little odd. Oh. It's a mixing of myths, and he really doesn't like that. I think there's also that he's jealous. Lewis can turn these books out very, very quickly. And they're probably commercially 
pretty damn good. Well, it seems to me that that's part of the issue. That's, that's why Lewis can't get that promotion. Because we tend to think about Lewis and Oxford, but of course his last job is in Cambridge. That's where he gets that chair. And it seems to be that Tolkien in the end intervenes to get him the job because he's been passed over at Oxford. Now, it's partly that he's seen as too commercial and too Christian as well by that point. Yeah, which sort of takes away from the idea of drawing from folklore, perhaps. You know, Tolkien was much clearer, sort of Norse. The northern folklore is what they both draw on. Those uh, Scandinavian, the, the Elder Edda, is what they're drawing on. The links with Wagner are there as well. Alderbrat and Thorin Oakenshield are similar, and so Wagner is drawing from the same source material that Tolkien has read and enjoyed in his work. Like the idea of the cauldron, you yeah. said. Yeah. Well, because <laughs> Tolkien looks at those northern myths and he sees that Britain doesn't have an equivalent and he says there's a cultural lacuna there. He blames the Reformation for it and so he writes the legendarium, which is incomplete, obviously, but it's meant to fulfil the function of the epic. The folklore and its relationship with the epic is quite an interesting one. So Andrew Lang argues about this in the 19th century that the folklore is usually seen as a kind of byproduct of it but he argues that the folklore is the basis for it and that the epic is then built on top of it because the fairy tales are very short by and large that's why Anderson looks very different in some of his longer tales the little mermaid is noticeably longer than most fairy tales they're coming out from that idea of you sit and you tell these tales of the fire rather than this multi-part episodic thing much closer to what Tolkien's doing Hobbit obviously is a much more straightforward narrative that he told his children and yes. then the idea of adding a much darker and more layered mythological land while the war was happening as yes. well so that it becomes the grown-up book of the Hobbit really. He writes about in his letters about the mistake he made for writing for children and that children could see through it and that what he then wants is to write a book that children can read and enjoy, but it isn't written specifically for them. And again, I think it's about MacDonald. He rails against this notion of the book that can be read for the reader age between 8 and 80, which is an idea MacDonald has, and which Oscar Wilde does as well for his fairy tales. There's a different tone, isn't there? C.S. Lewis is much more aimed at a young audience. Lionel Witch in the Wardrobe is dedicated to Lewis's goddaughter, and he says in the dedication that you'll be too old to read fairy tales by the time I finish this book but I hope that one day you'll be old enough to go back to reading fairy tales and so it's the sense that the Narnia books are fairy tales and that there's a period in your life where you don't read fairy tales and that you can come back to them then as an older reader which a lot of people do I mean I definitely did my mum read me all the books and then when I was maybe 18, 19 I suddenly thought oh I'd quite like to read those again and you read them differently then as an adult and you can see these nuances or you can see where things have been added to them or changed to them when you go back into the original so you look at the the Grimm's even within their own corpus in the original Rapunzel, the reason the witch knows that the prince has been visiting Rapunzel is that Rapunzel is pregnant. Okay. And so that's removed then from the subsequent ones. The, the Grimm's become very averse around sex. They don't mind the violence at all. The, the, the stories remain horrendously violent, but the sex is gone. Yeah, I and mean, it's fascinating about the sort of rape and the Sleeping Beauty myth. Extraordinary. I mean, Snow White's another interesting one that when you go back to the original, there are moments of ick in it. Snow White's only seven when the wicked stepmother decides to kill her off and eat bits of her. And she can't age that much in the story. So what you get at the end then is the prince comes along and sees a corpse of a child in a glass box and says, I quite like that, can I have it? Oh, God. The fairy tale is always freighted with 
the fact that the female protagonist has to be both a child but also has to be marriable. It's difficult how they get round that one because yeah. it's both a child but a child who could have sex. And so you can see Anderson gets very agitated about this because Anderson and sexuality is quite an interesting question. So in The Red Shoes, what we tell about Karen, the child in The Red Shoes, that she gets these red shoes around the time of her confirmation. So 11, 12, 13. Which is sort of adolescence yeah. and puberty. And so there's a fear on nascent female sexuality. And so she has to dance and dance and dance. And dancing is often encoded for sex, of course. You know, famously in Doctor Who, when the Doctor dances, it's read as his relationship with Rose in that first season with Eccleston and Billy Piper. Oh, I didn't know about this. And then at the end, Karen, she begs to have her feet chopped off. And so you get the 13-year-old girl asked to have herself maimed. And then she dies, but it's okay because she gets a vision of heaven. And we're meant to accept that as somehow um, an acceptable story. Come on, Disney, you can step up to the mark with the Which remake. Which, is why the suicide <laughs> at the end of, the, of Paul and Pressburger's <clears throat> version of The Red Shoes. It's closer, yep. really. And it's such a darkly layered tale, yeah. But you can see Lewis has a problem with female sexuality as well. Well, they kind of all do. I mean, Tolkien just avoids sex completely. Absolutely. But at the end of Narnia, when all the children die, so spoilers here, this is what really goes Philip Pullman about Lewis, although they're much closer in some We're going to go into the Susan question. Susan, yes. Susan doesn't die, but it means that she can't go into Aslan's Bowen. And why doesn't Susan die? She doesn't believe in Narnia anymore. She's more interested in boys and lipstick and stockings. So again, feet and dancing. That's true. When you start taking the layers off these things, my God... Right, so where are we now? We're just in the middle of nowhere. Do we know where we're going? No. I think oh, we should have taken a left turn back down there. You can get the sense of how easy it is to get lost. We're in farming land. We really are. Um, we need a local. We should have got my student to meet us. I think he lives here because he was asking me last week, had we done the podcast yet? The road is very bad. You might not be able to get through. This looks like a bad road, so we're doing well. You can see the old road underneath. The old yeah. brick road there, and Absolutely. the reuse of materials. I can connect it all up. So the long man, going back to giants, the long man at Wilmington, isn't Neolithic at all, despite what people might claim. Helen Poole, who used to be at Crawley Museum, she'd done analysis of the brickwork around the long man, and it's 15th or 16th century. It's probably from either Lewis Priory, because Thomas Cromwell is given Lewis Priory, and he blows it up to get it out of the way to build a new house. Cromwell is then executed, and Anne of Cleves is given all that property. Or it's Mickleham Priory, the monks are thrown out of there in the 1530s that the bricks are taken and they're used to make the outline of the long man because the long man doesn't appear on any of the surveys in the 17th or 18th century which you'd expect it to be on yeah it's a sense in the 19th century there should be a giant here because there's certainly legends of giants around there two giants fighting in fact i've always thought that it looks more like he's opening a door into the hillside with the two spears he's unusual in many respects i mean there's an argument that you get that type of image in the 17th century, and it's an anti-Cromwellian image. And so some of the firebacks in the museum in the Anna Cleves house in Lewis, you have this type of anti-Cromwellian imagery. A broken anchor is on one of them to indicate that the ship of state is in danger. Because you're using the firebacks to tell stories often. So there's an odd one that looks like it's recreating one of the burnings in Lewis in the 1550s of Protestants. But Michael Kestier, the historian, looked at it and said, that would be a joke, wouldn't it? Quite a bad joke. Alfred Watkins, the old straight track, he mentions the long man being a surveyor because of the two poles. Yeah. 
and saying, ah, well, you see, this is the laying ley lines, whether or not you go in for ley lines. But the idea of measuring distance, and that was a marker to show, ah, yes, you can see ancient peoples had this idea of tracks and how you get from A to B. Yes, it's up and up hills and over rivers and all those, but it's a straight track that would take you from A to B. The big ley line place in Sussex is East Grinstead. East Grinstead is a very strange town, and that's one argument that's given as to why the Scientologists have got their UK base in East Grinstead. But East Grinstead, very religious still. It had three Marian martyrs. A friend of mine was working there, and the woman she was working with said, Eileen, you're a lovely woman, but you are going to hell, I'm afraid, because you're Catholic. And so that kind of deep-rooted wow. Sussex anti-Catholicism is there even to this day. But the ley lines run through East Grinstead, and so that's often held up as why it's such a strange town. Are those sort of landmarks and things within East Grinstead? Yeah, no, East Grinstead? there's not much. And in fact, East Grinstead is, is the unloved child when they divided the county in 1973. Because, of course, Sussex is a complete entity until it's divided purely for administrative purposes. And they're not quite sure which half of the county. So East Grinstead moves between them. So it's in West Sussex now, but it's far more like an East Sussex town. It's iron industry, it's religious background. It's all suggestive of the eastern half of the county rather than the western half. Sackville College is there, which was an almshouse, and there was major controversy around John Mason Neal, who's the translator of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, who was a Church of England cleric. He'd started off in Ifield, it's now in Crawley. The weather was inclement, so he was abroad for a while, and then he got this job at Sackville. But there's a huge controversy around him, because he closes it to the public, and there's lots of rumours that he's turning it into a Catholic church. One of the um, pensioners living in the almshouse died and there's a big investigation into it and the, the press run it in such a way you're meant to think Neil killed him but in fact it turns out that Neil's just been called as a witness because he wasn't even there the day the man died. In the 1850s, so it's around the time of the re-establishment of Catholic hierarchy, Neil had established an order of Anglican nuns and one of the nuns was from Lewis and she died and so Neil went down for the funeral and he asked her father who was a vicar should he say a prayer over her and the father said no, no you can't do that. But the rumour started that Neil was in town and he was going to say Mass in, I think it's St Anne's, which is on the prison road out of Lewis. And this mob chased this asthmatic intellectual vicar up the high road and he has to hide in the pub until the train's coming. <laughs> and this, again, it's that notion that we won't be drove. Yeah. This is Sussex, we do things differently here. Um, yeah, what is it about the Sussex character? It's strange. and It's, it's quite Cornish, though, as well, isn't it? It is. It's the places that are far enough away from London before you get the railways going in. And I think those stories do change once the railways are in. That sense of isolation of an established community. You can see it around some of the Norwegian tales that as Borshen and Mo collect in the 19th centuries, the Norwegian version of the Grimm's, you get the sense of small communities that get isolated in the winter and they tell the tales about themselves. I mean, I'm from Guernsey and it's a very isolating and isolated place and yes. I think the community there is still very much, this is our place. I know it's a big divide between 
the offshore banking and English community yeah. and the local people. But you read back in other literature and things about Guernsey, it's a very strongly religious place. They're yes. very mistrustful of outsiders. It's got this Breton blood as well, you know. In those type of places, you always get a tension then between the established communities and new communities, but and particularly holiday communities. Very much the Cornish experience. So do we have any idea where to go? We'll get there. We'll get to the knuckers hole. <laughs> yeah, fascinating. It's the ramblings of someone who's let loose in front of students three or four times a week. You're based down in Chichester. We've got two campuses. We've got the main campus in Chichester and we're in Bognor Regis as well. But we were established as the University of Chichester in 2005. And your course is doing well? Oh, the fairy tale module always recruits well. And it's open to history students, to philosophy students, creative writing students can do it now as well. And so we get some really marvellous fairy tales being produced by the, the students. Very interesting one with last year, a retelling of Aladdin, where he kidnaps the princess. Because he's so gallant, despite the kidnapping, he puts a sore between them. So there'll be no sexy panky. We're back to that old issue again. In, in, in yeah. the version the student wrote, uh, she chops his head off and she <laughs> escaped. But she won't steal his trunk with his treasure in because she's not that low. Right. Um, there we are. There's always a story each year, and they, they seem to really grab onto that one. Yeah. But oh. in Grimm's, you know, a lot of the stories are about female protagonists. Yes. And they sort of find power or a voice or something. They're not simply a love interest. That's true. Certainly in a couple of the versions that they do of Bluebeard, which was a spectacularly unpleasant story and Disney yes. never produced it. It's um, a hard one to sanitise, isn't it? Three or four years ago we were doing A Red Riding Hood and remember to this day the student's mouth falling open when he realised it was a version where Red Riding Hood doesn't escape because his parents had never read it to him. So he had no awareness of the version where she's just eaten and that's the end of the story. Okay. Perot does that and then he puts a moral at the end. There are wolves everywhere and it's really to warn women around court in Paris. In the Would that have been the original version? No, he seems to have had access to earlier versions of it. So there's a really particularly bleak version where Red Riding Hood is made to eat some of her grandmother. It's the My mother didn't tell me that. No. Or where she tells the wolf, I really need a wee. And so she goes out, and that's how she escapes. Far oh, more physicality in these versions of it. And um, this is Perrault. This is Perrault, yeah. Then Perrault, Perrault has that she's eaten, and that's it. And then you get the moral at the end. And then Doré's illustrations of it in the 19th century, they don't help. They make it even worse, the illustration that Do he's they? got. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I've got yeah. to research this. So we have these beautiful illustrators, Arthur Rackham, Gustave yes. Doré... I mean, they're incredible pieces of work, yes. aren't they? Dory's uh, Bluebeard is particularly interesting because he seems to turn Bluebeard into an almost oriental character. Ah. The beard and the trousers and the cutlass. Yeah. And then he's been stabbed in the back by the musketeer brothers who come to save the wife, the sister. Is Bluebeard a Perro story? Uh, yes, his is the first literary version. With the fairy tale, you've always got the question between the relationship between the oral and the, and the literary. Which comes first? That feels much more like a Teutonic story somehow, Bluebeard with yes. the castle. It's interesting as well, as you said earlier, about the societal shift as to when a story comes to prominence and you latch on to certain bits, what is quite a big fairy tale or story will then just diminish. 
because something else will take its place. How and when that happens as the social morals move around, that's the story we're going to focus on now. Um, Do you think people do read these tales to their children I, I wouldn't read them to my daughter for a long time because lurking behind them is something unpleasant and so I became that type of parent deeply yeah. censorious well we're very protective now yeah. this, this generation of children that we almost don't want them to know terrible things but in a way I was reading another thing about a psychologist saying we try and hide death yes. from our children but that doesn't teach them to deal with it. Well, even as adults, of course, what's interesting is how averse people are to just using the word death or dying. The absolute dominance of they've passed away, yes, they've gone over the rainbow over. bridge. Yeah. I mean, my daughter reads them now. It was just when she was much smaller and I was kind of trying to work out my own relationship with these stories as I was working on them more and more. My son's is different. My five-year-old is there now watching Doctor Who. Yeah, I mean, I remember death being quite pleasurable thing that you'd always play war games and enjoy the death scene well i think it tracks back to your earlier point about public information films in the 70s and 80s you don't get them anymore so you don't get that kind of terror at tea time i remember them coming in to warn us about going on the railway track and getting the old johnny doesn't need his football boots anymore don't fly a kite near a pilot yeah Oh, God, we couldn't do anything, but we were desperate to go and do all of these things as a result. Like Charlie says. I I was always very worried about being shut in a fridge. Yeah, that was a big thing, wasn't it? Is it sometimes, then, not necessarily a fear of death, but with the fear of death is from the parent to the child, but actually, you were saying about... There's like an imbued language, which is fear or obedience, especially with women. So there is a, a kind of ingrainedness that maybe as a, as a folklorist you pick up on or someone that looks at these stories a great deal, you think, actually, this is just telling you to obey men. Yeah, there is and that. And actually, that's far more harmful than someone dying. That's why a lot of the students react so badly and so strongly against the fairy tales now. It's particularly in the 19th century when they increasingly become for didactic purposes. Mm-hmm. And there is that notion of male control there. Beauty and the Beast is an interesting one because he's earlier... And again, it's not tend to be picked up on. If you look at Beaumont, the author of what's the version of Beauty and the Beast that we all tend to know, she's a nanny in this country. In fact. She's, she's French, but she's in this country. And so the argument is that her stories come from tales that she tells her charges. The Beauty and the Beast is actually a tale about sensibility. So the, the, the Beast is occupying the kind of Stephen Beauty Snow White place that he's in the castle. We've come to a turning, we're just seeing if we can find the knucker hole. That is someone's house. We've got a sign offering homemade jam and marmalade. Reasonable prices. We could pop to the house, buy a jam and ask them at the same time. Buy you a jam? Yeah. There's a totem pole in the garden of the house. Hi there. Hello, James. I want to get down to the knucker hole. Knucker, right. Drop down here, carry on to the end of there, and it's sitting there. You're on about that carved thing. With yeah, 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 yeah. Can I buy some marmalade? Diane! Yes? Come on. What's this all in there, Well, we're doing... Podcasts. Yeah, oh, we're... Folklore. We're d- Lots of folklore here. The totem pole down there. We've got wolves carved in old oak trees. Previous occupants were faith healers and things like that. So, <laughs> you know, we're on a ley line here. Oh. Some of the old boys you pick up here just talk. Strange stuff. Okay. Did they go to yeah. the Black Horse Inn? Is what no. We need to know. No. Okay. They're getting old now. They can't oh, make their way down there okay. after dark. Oh. Yeah, there's lots of stuff like that yeah. around here. But the knuckers down that track. Be careful, there's a lot of water on the left. Mm. I suppose I better put the other boot on. Could I have a bit of marmalade? How much? <laughs> 250. That's three. Lovely. Thank you. Looks delicious. Thank you. Thanks Thank you so easy. much.
always good to talk to the locals. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 you see, ley lines. And strange stories. Yeah, you'll be straight back here. But of course, how far yeah. is it just be Shaggy Dog story? But it would be fantastic, wouldn't it, to find some very, very ancient crone to share their local tones. Well, it's interesting you said men, and you say crone. Do we gender who has the stories? We, you know, I'm going for a crone. Go for crone, yeah. Yeah. full crone. Witches and wise women, isn't it? That's who retains that type of arcane knowledge. It, it's the wise woman. Yeah. It's only when some stewards come south that you get a witch craze, and then suddenly the local wise woman becomes this kind of sinister figure that you need to hang them. Having any power or any voice or any importance. In, in Graham Smith's Waterland, which you, you might recall, comes out as a real boon of postmodernism and where the whole Hayden White stuff about history is his story and it's set in the fence. So again, isolated communities, you know, it's partly about Dickens and it's about fairy tale. It starts once upon a time. But of course, the big revelation is that when Tom's girlfriend becomes pregnant, they go to the wise woman in the woods to, quote, deal with the problem. Oh. And they have the terrible line of the future that was ours in a bucket. So grim. That's really brought the tone down there. That's the thing, it's all about the visceral stuff as well, isn't it, really? Well, certainly, I mean, the illustrations of the Sussex serpent from that 17th century text, what do you see? Here's the serpent, what's that? A load of bodies around him, just to show how dangerous he is. Right. And it's dogs and people. Whereas with the knucker, it depends on the version you read. Is it young women he's carrying off, or is it um, yeah. animals? So is that, again, a sexual thing, the male predator... I think that the dragon, young virgin yeah. damsels. I think, I think that's right. Whereas when he's carrying off livestock, of course, it's people's property yeah. and it's people's livelihoods. So it's two different fears the, the knucker is evoking there, I think. A barren county. But in both instances, it's about fecundity, isn't it? If he takes yeah. off your animals, you can't have them reproduce and therefore you've got no stock. If he carries off the maidens, there's no children to reproduce and therefore you haven't got that stock either. So there is something around fecundity, I think. With the knucker, the water, of course. Because they can't see where the stream comes in, that's why it gets this sense of the magical. It's an underground river that's bringing the water in for the, for the holes. So I suppose there's a mystical thing of where has this come from? Yes. Do your guests often get you lost, or is this a first? Oh, we get hopelessly we lost. We get lost. We get lost. It's it's perfectly perfectly well, right. Because yeah. then you, you, know, you meet different people. And they're friendly, whereas if you went knocking on someone's door in town, they don't, wouldn't open the door. No, especially holding a strange furry yeah. microphone. Which may be what the dog was barking at. It could be. Right, we're going down what we presume to be muddy lane, which has hoof marks and is reasonably muddy. Do you write any sort of publishing things? Uh, I'm working on a proposal for a book called The Protestant Fantasy Tradition which is going from Edmund Spencer's use of dragons through to C.S. Lewis, Pullman, and then a final chapter on, on Doctor Who and how dragons change. They become allegorical and then move away from being allegorical into just dragons. More straightforward, just horrible things. Yeah, rather than representing something. I like when Bunyan gets hold of giants, Bunyan emerges from a tradition that's kind of concerned about metaphor yeah. because it conceals you know, that whole 16th century... Protestant concern around poetry and around theatre, that yes. it, it's a form of lying and therefore it's idolatrous or it, it's, it's spiritually dangerous and that you need plain dealing, plain words. Puritan plain style, that's the description, isn't it? And so then, when, but you get this like, fantastic allegorical work on the part of Bunyan and then Milton, where he fits in that tradition, where he's using images from the Bible, what he does with them and his concern with or playing with ideas about rhetoric. So 
who's constrained by full stops in Paradise Lost. It's not Satan, it's God. God's whose lines end with full stops. Satan just runs on and on and on, runs on beyond the line. He's more interesting. This is Blake's point that... I was going to say William Blake is the next figure that yes. immediately springs to mind. Pullman is drawing from both Milton and then Blake in the second trilogy. All the time working against Lewis, but also kind of covering ground that Lewis has worked through as well. And Blake was very much about sort of sexual freedom as well, wasn't yes. he? And things that were maybe quite radical ideas. Blake is put on trial in Chichester, so he has a local connection because he's, he's cottages in Felpham. But he's put on trial for treason in Chichester. It's laughed out of court. He's tried in the Guildhall in the Priory Park, which had been part of the monastic buildings before they were destroyed. And do we know who took the charge against It was him? a soldier took against him. Because of course, uh, Blake, again, a very liberal figure, not into that kind of shutdown on radicalism that you find in this country once they become aware of just how violent the French Revolution is becoming. So Wordsworth obviously can make the move, but Wollstonecraft, Godwin, they get caught and they get labelled as radicals. Blake is there as well, whereas Wordsworth manages to survive to be the grand old man. Here we are. We're here. We've come to the Celtic carving. So green man on top, and then the knucker around him. Two knuckers, in fact. More like serpents than they are our traditional image of the dragon. And the wings are folded in, but you can't see feet so again, it's much closer to the Sussex serpent or snakes in general. And then we've got a toad. It tells us here. The green man, the knucker, dormouse, badgers, toad, hops, and on the reverse, cornflowers, poppies, barley and beads. So again, it's all about crops. It's all about agricultural community. It's, it is for the local community. So it's about six foot something. It's wooden. It's beautifully carved. The sculptor is Janine Cray. That's definitely not a bottomless pool. It can't be this. I, d- that can't be I think that probably is it, you know? Well, it's got the river falling into it and it is still. It, so it's hugely underwhelming. You couldn't get much of a dragon in there. No. Yeah. So it's not a dragon. It's more like to be an eel or a snake. And we're looking at the design here. You wouldn't mark something. No. no. It's not here. No. It's I mean, there. that is bigger than it. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a rain the, the tractor a rainwater bubble. Um, <laughs> Let's be generous and think that maybe over time, yeah, silt and in. earth yeah. is collected and made it less of a knucker hole. Well, it's the pond, and we're looking at there's two holes, and that it moves between yeah. them because the pond was dredged. I think it's the pond where they had concerns around the tractor. It was deeper than they were expecting, and they were concerned that the tractor was going to get stuck in it. You can see then local myth and legend is still not that far from the surface. Mm. The idea that the coach and the horses have been lost in there in the 18th century, that the creature, whatever it is, dragon, serpent... Again, come back to the point that the properly documented literary one, it does shift between dragon and serpent. In one of the stories I read, Jim Puttock drives the huge pie on a horse and cart yes. and the serpent dragon eats yes. all of it yes. horse and cart it's, it, it's monstrous it has a monstrous appetite and you have to emphasise that monstrousness its appetite is, is huge and it's insatiable and therefore you have to stop it before it eats everything because a little dragon that's not scary that's no. cute yeah. something big and terrifying that kills you or your property that's what you want and, and it eats a big old pie <laughs> Thank you.
But again, it's the kind of it's the mundaneness. It's a pie that kills the dragon. Yeah, it's, which it's, is it's a very mundane, homely, yeah. local thing. I mean, it? I will have to check now if, if Sussex eel pie has got that linked as one of our few culinary exports from the county. Pond pudding is another one. But again, pond, it's association with water. Oh. What's pond pudding? It's a lemon and suet. I have threatened to make it on a number of occasions. That Valentine's suet. banquet of eel pie. <laughs> yeah, that went really well. <laughs> That's going to be... I'm going to treat you today. Yeah, it's going to be all sorts of And a load of beer, because wine is effete and Protestant. Yeah. Well, I will not have it in this okay. house. Well, there we are. There's lots of crows on the large tree-surrounded field in front of us. And as we were saying, a larger rain puddle than our rather sad knucker hole. But we found it eventually. We, yeah. in the end. This this is the knocker hole. Well done, team. <laughs> we started a lunchtime film and fantasy club at work. Three turned up for the first one. I showed them the first episode of Quakermass Experiment. They didn't have a clue what was going on. Black and white, I don't know what's going on. And then the, the comedy drunk wanders in with a football rap okay. after the rockets crashed into a house in Wimbledon. Yeah. And it's about the cultural memory of the V2 rockets from nine years earlier, but also about the fear of the, the Russian bomb. I mean, really innovative. Rudolf Cartier, the producer, producer director. director. Yeah, yeah. One of the very first series to use proper outdoor yeah. photography, which made it so much more filmic. Neil's got an interesting use of folklore as well. Hobbs Lane, obviously, yeah. and Quatermass in the Pit. Stone circles and ley lines in the, the really bleak, yeah, the last Quatermass. which I love. One. But even in his stuff for um, My TV, uh, Beasts. Baby. Incredible. Yeah, babies. Yeah, that's all. Yeah. There's cats bricked up in Hastings like that, which is familiar, and it's terrifying. Are you still doing the club? I'm going to show an MR James for Christmas, and we're going to do Doctor Who. It's all gone woke now, question mark, exclamation mark, question mark. Well, it has a bit. Yeah. And then I might do a talk on C.S. Lewis. He dies the day before Doctor Who starts. Lewis, know. Huxley, both die the day Kennedy's assassinated. Same day Doctor Who's first um, so show. It's a busy day. Because everyone's focus was on uh, the assassination, uh, Lewis was dead and buried before people realised it. Huxley was in California taking lots of mescaline by that That's point. Right. Yeah, falling into his trousers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if people remember who Huxley was. I said he's very different to the figure raging against cinema in the 1920s and 1930s. He really hates cinema. He's in America at the end of the 20s and he's disgusted by it. He's disgusted. Because it's the death of literature. It's that, yeah. And Fordism, of course, which is Fordism and Freudism were underpinning New State in Brave New world so that's why you get the idea of the feelies which is still revolting when you go yeah. to the cinema and you get touched up and he particularly loathes sound in cinema here's a, a essay on it where he really goes to town he saw um the jazz singer he hated it wow. ironic he ends up opening the doors of perception in california and closing them again. I was going to show a bit of Box of Delights. A group of us meet every Christmas and watch Box of Delights in each other's houses. I saw it the first time it was on. I loved it then, I still love it. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. Even the end, which of course is John Mason's wife is blamed for the dream, isn't she? She read it and said, it has to be a dream, John. Oh, for goodness sake. But it doesn't work because he's already encountered yeah. Daisy Pouncer yeah. in the Midnight Folks. So... Sorry. Yeah. Tolkien hates the dream as well. He never wants dreams as an explanation. Dream visions, yeah, that's fine. That's a cop out. Okay. about Charles Williams, the third inkling within, he, the within forgotten all man of the, the forgotten inkling. inkling. I, I don't know enough about him. He's to, having a bit of a resurgence. He is, isn't There's he? The Sarah Press have just reprinted and are enlarging upon his opus with Mark Valentine, who's just written a load of new stories in the style of Charles Williams. I've never and heard he, of him. Charles even. Williams writes about archetypes, 
So he's intensely Christian, as much the same as C.S. Lewis was. So, for instance, one of his most famous books is called The Greater Trumps, and it's basically if all the greater trumps of the Arcana were real and they just ascended on this village, what would they do? Wow. And it's ex extremely occult, even though he was very, very Christian, writes some extraordinary things. He's probably why Lewis doesn't go Catholic. A lot of the trad Catholics in America... They want to make Lewis as Catholic as they can, but their problem is that Lewis is an Ulster Protestant, and so he has this seam running through him. And so because it's Tolkien and Williams are the two who he talks about, when he's working his way back into organised religion, it's probably Williams that tips him into Anglicanism rather than Tolkien bringing him into Catholicism. That and, of course, his own background as an as a Ulster Protestant. Yeah. Oh, we'll have to explore him. Yes. Extraordinary. Yeah. Look, very difficult to read. Yeah. Like... If you think Tolkien's difficult, he's all ideas, constant, constant, constant ideas, even wrapped up in archetypes. Mm. And, like, things come alive, so lions come alive, but everything has meaning beyond meaning beyond being deliberately yeah. infused yeah. within it. So a character isn't just, you know, something of wands. It's that plus everything else underneath it, and you have to kind of know Christianity, you have to know the occult workings or tarot as well as this as well as this as well as this before you even get into it so consequently he was very well revered but no one reads him now yeah, okay. it's just too difficult. too difficult look thank you so much no you're welcome that was you're great welcome. we found it we did find we did. it we yeah, found eventually it in the end. <laughs> no I enjoyed it a lot great. keep me in mind if you ever want anything else like that yeah, if you want giants or cannibals in Sussex just Cannibals. Drop us Cannibals. 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 Come on. Sussex. Would you like the jam? Have the <laughs> Thank you. That's there you oh, go. I'll enjoy it. I'll have that tomorrow, Dad. leaving our first knucker hole of the day after meeting Dr Quinn. What did you make of it, Tim? I thought it was absolutely brilliant. So, so much information. My mind was whirling. All these references. Very interesting stuff about the origins of some of the more dark and sexual elements of some of those Grimm's tales were truly grim. Some of them were absolutely horrific. When you're kind of presented with, oh, but the original has this, everybody dies, people eat each other. Red yes. Riding Hood starts eating her own grandmother. What's that all about? What? Oh, gosh. Yeah, but very interesting. All of these meetings start to make you see the world in a slightly different way somehow. Mm, and how they're borrowed. The stories are borrowed. They're from here, they're from there, they're from everywhere. You know, folklore becomes a melting pot of so many different people and ideas and travellers bringing tales and the tales then changing and then that becoming the story. Very interesting in terms of sort of the class and religious thing of how this particular story changes from being a chivalrous knight to being a local boy. Being a Protestant boy against the Catholics. Almost like the knucker is the Catholic and why you know, he drinks beer, he doesn't drink wine. Wine is a foreign thing that is brought in. Bloody foreigners with their rich clarets and wines. And wonderful sauces. Culinary expertise, we don't need none of that. Exactly, just stick with the eel pie and mud pudding. Pond pudding, was it? Pond pudding, that's it. A friend of mine did once make a lemon solid. Do you know about this? No, what's that? 
It's a Mrs. Beaton recipe, somewhere between a jelly and a blancmange. The, the, the name Lemon Solid. No, it sounds like a posset gone completely mental. Yeah. Was it solid? It was fairly solid. I mean, it wasn't so solid that you couldn't deal with it. But. <laughs> I like the fact of it being presented. I can't deal with this. This is it's too solid. There's too much solid in the solid. So we're off to our second knucker rendezvous. In the churchyard of Liminster Church, St Mary Magdalene's. And who are we meeting? We are meeting Ray and her husband. Wonderfully, we're going to have a little lunch. She's going to show us the hole and the extremely brilliant stained glass window of a knucker. I have read about this. It does sound fantastic. I think there's two angels, the Jim Puttock, Jim Polk character, carrying what's maybe quite a small symbolic pie, and, of course, the dragon. This huge red dragon that just dominates the stained glass window. And the top of the tomb. The top of a Norman tomb. And again, it'd be interesting to know, well, where did this stone come from? Is it Purbeck again? Where is that tomb now? This is the lid of it. Where's the rest of it? Mm, Where is the body? Five minutes away from destination number two. Second knucker. Hopefully it'll be the same knucker. We could do a long walk before again races. I have no idea where we're going. I did enjoy the fact that we confidently were being led and none of us had any idea where we were going. Until we literally made our way out of the village, pretty much back to the car. I could see the car from the, where the knuckle hole was. It's all part of the experience. Park in the pub, turn left at the church. Can't miss it. Can't miss it. But then we would never have encountered the totem pole, the lady with the jam. Yeah. I think the ley line was pulling us that way. I think so. I think so. So, Liminster, there we are. We're Limonster. on our way. It's quite close to Arundel. Which is also a very pretty town. And you've stayed in the castle. I have. My wedding night was in Arundel Castle. And then the next day I found out they had an oubliette. They forgot the oubliette. They forgot the oubliette. I went for wedding night, but I stayed for the oubliette. Doesn't oubliette mean forgetting? Yes, it does. Again, it's potentially a bottomless hole, isn't it? You get lowered in and you can't get out. That's it. It's funny you mention oubliette. We were watching 39 Steps yesterday which has an oubliette. They talk about the oubliette. Do they? Whenever I think of an oubliette, I think of labyrinth on the way to the the goblin city. It's not a word you often hear, though. It's not, but it is a lovely word. Mm. Oubliette. Do you know the ha-ha? I've come across this, and I think I have seen, when I was in Scotland, a ha-ha but I can't quite remember. It's part. Is it, it's like a landscape thing. Yeah, right? it's like a sort of dip in the land. It's just such a nice word. It's to, like, trick the eye. It's to cover something. So castles were built, or stately homes were built, on a ha-ha. So, Where they? So I didn't the, know what it actually so was for. you wouldn't have to see the villagers. So you'll be lifted up, so you could have a better view. Say, ha-ha, can't see you. Exactly. <laughs> that's it. I think that's exactly it. Ha-ha, look at me on my hill. Liminster Church, we're going down Church Lane. We often seem to be going down Church Lane. We do, and very often there are a church. On a few occasions there hasn't been. No. School Lane, I remember, had yeah. no school. No school. Yeah. There we are. You can see the lich gate of the church. There's a kind of triangle of green. Yeah. Again, a lovely church with a Norman tower. It's beautiful, isn't it? Let's go and have a look. Now, the hole 
is very close to the church, probably down that public footpath. So we're just going through the lich gate into the graveyard. I do like a lich gate. I love a lich gate. I do. Well, you want to rest your coffin somewhere. <laughs> You've got, when you want to rest your coffin, lich gate. Is that water there? I think that I may think, be. Yeah, no, I think yes. that might be. I think that's a flooded field, actually. Uh, should we just have a quick peek? Let's have a Mervyn peek at this. Let's have a little Mervyn. We're going to create our own grammar of words, aren't we? Fiddle. Exactly. Fiddle. That's a new one. So we're going down to the bottom of the graveyard, and we can see a flooded, flooded meadow field. I mean, that could beyond. that could be it. You know. It might be. But it is supposed to be fenced off. There's quite a lot of water. We're coming a couple of days after very, very heavy flooding and rain. But this is a very beautiful old churchyard. It's lovely. As an aside, though, now I hope I'm right on this, but I'm pretty sure that the word cemetery is an American word oh. because graveyard is too much of what it really is. Uh. Like, oh, that's where you put bodies. Yes. A sanitised version mm. is to call it a cemetery. In fact, Aldous Huxley talks about that. He wrote a book called All the Many Summers, which is about one of those grand cemeteries in California. They made a film of it, actually, with uh, Robert Morley, would you believe? Which, obviously, now I know, much to Aldous Huxley's absolute hatred that well, they made yes. a film of I never one of that. his books. Isn't that strange? But it's all about the cemetery trade. It came off the back of the Mitford book about cemeteries and burials in America and how they have monetized it to such a high extent. Isn't there an Evelyn War book about kind of commodifying yes, death? There, yes, there is. Maybe the love yeah. one. But yes, again, very similar. Shall we sit on that strange oh, shall circular we? Yes, bench? Let's do that. In the middle of the kind of triangular green. Looking forward to some soup now. A nice wholesome soup. Yes. Sounds excellent. Great. Hi. Hello. Nice lovely, to meet you. Lovely, lovely to meet you. Thank you so much for this. Hi. Hi. Where is the knuckle hole from here? Because we had a little wander through the church. Yeah, it's down it, there. Oh, it's down there. Yeah. I might put the boots on. I've known it over my wellies before now. So. Come on, Tim. They're not <laughs> practical. <laughs> you were warned. Uh, <laughs> were. Beautiful place so, to live. We have the sea a couple of miles that way, the South Downs that way. Yeah. Nooker first? Oh, yes. Well, yes. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, we do the nooker. I'll open up the church, switch the lights on, that sort of stuff. In the six years that we've lived here, we've talked to lots of people and done lots of research about it. But a lot of the information people post in the like on Facebook groups and things like that. But I mean, it's a fascinating legend, the whole serpent dragon, the incredible window, which we're going to see. And the church dates back to Norman. Yes, yeah, so 1040. Fantastic. Mike's the one with more research on the history of the church. I've done a lot of history on the village and previous residents. So our house was named after a person. We did a lot of research and that got us interested in the characters of the village and the history going back. So we traced somebody who lived there when he was 11 and he's written a bit of a spiel about what life was for him back in the 1940s. It kind of got us excited to find out who's in the graveyard. Do you have anyone special in the graveyard? I don't know if you know Rosemary Ann Sissons. Yes. She had a house in London. And there's books written about her, and she's written books as well mm. uh, with descriptions of the area. So. Rosemary Sisson, I think she adapted a lot of drama for 
television in the 1970s. Yeah, so she did a lot of work with Disney and mm. she also did Upstairs, Downstairs, if That's you remember right. that. No, yeah. the name's very familiar. Yes. So, so we've reached, this is where we just peer through it. We've reached so. a very fortified wooden and metal gate and it's got barbed wire at the top. People make the mistake of thinking over here is the nooker, yeah. but they were the old watercress beds back in the day oh. when it was all open. Yeah. But the nooker, actually, if you come back here and look through there, you can see the water there. Who owns this? The people over there. Oh. They are worried about safety, basically, mm, yeah, and lots yeah. of people come and see it, and it's a bit of a wildlife haven, mm. and they don't want lots of people here. It's interesting that so many people do want to go mm. to it, actually, because it seems quite a specialised mm. thing that not that many people maybe know about. So we walk down here with mm. the dogs most days, yeah. um, and we do come across a lot of people hearing in or kind mm. of asking what, how to get to the number. Mm. So there were a fair few people. We went to the one in Binstead, and they have a big wooden yeah. carving with serpents and a green man very much sort of like ah here is the knuckle hole almost venerating it as if to say mm, please come yeah. and, and see it yeah. so it's interesting how different places change and like oh no this is now a safety thing you know yeah. kids running or whatever and exactly I guess if it's incredibly deep and it's flooded you don't know where it is compared to where you are so these are all flood plains around us and kind of between here and Arundel gets very flooded so it looks right. like a lake they're all flood plains though so it's all supposed to flood yeah, yeah. That's a picture from March 2021. It's kind of circular, which I'm sure you know. It's a beautiful thing. And I suppose you yeah. can't really tell how deep it is just by looking. They say it's about 30 foot. They had mm. divers down there at one point, apparently. Yeah. It's one of the old legends is the guys from the bell ringers tied all the bells it, together yes. and lowered it down, etc. But no sign of any No sign. No. dragons. <laughs> but they said it was kind of just a big fish or something, don't they? An so, eel, perhaps. Yeah. So it is quite flooded as we walk past the meadows. Right, so we're walking back up to the church, going through the bottom of the graveyard. And how have you researched the people here? I originally found the guy who our house is named after. We went over to Chichester Records office and nobody over there knew. Yeah, asked around, local people. But we actually found him through a subscription to the British newspaper archive. So I went back and looked at the history of the village and the area and we actually found him because he was a witness in a poaching incident oh which went gosh. to the courts and the newspapers reported on it. Right, we're entering the church. And there's a lovely churchy smell. smell. Yeah, a lovely musty smell. Oh, and there it is. There's a fantastic stained glass window just to our left as we come in, right next to the mythical tombstone of the supposed dragon slayer. So we're looking at a very colourful window with the central depiction of a red-horned, pretty vicious-looking sea serpent, I would say. And Jim Polk, Jim Puttock. Holding a very small pie. It's a very small pie. Because some of the legends say that it was on a horse yeah. and cart and that the cart and horse were both eaten along with the presumably much larger pie. But this is more like a sort of Mr Kipling's individual fruit pie. Yes. Oh, and we've got a kind of shadow of six bells behind. Yeah. 
which refers to the bell ropes mm. and also the pub. And then we've got two angels either side bearing suns and moons. Mm. And then we've got this very, very old Norman top of a sarcophagus. Which is a sword on top of a herringbone pattern. The herringbone um, pattern's interesting, isn't it, in terms of relating to a kind of serpent style. Yeah, possibly the knight's sword over the top of the dragon's bones. As we're looking at it now, it looks like fish bones, like a fish skeleton. It does, yes. almost like a dinosaur. We don't really know where the stone came from. Or... It's about 1270. I think it was below this one, which is obviously very plain, but part of the church was a nunnery back in 977. This was the prioress, her tomb. It's a minster church, so it would have been an important church at that time. We we know that there were kings that would have met. Is it on a trade route? Is it between places? It was left by King Alfred to his nephew. They used to hunt here or whatever, but uh, certainly made more money because there was some salt locally. That's going to do it. And on the doomsday, I think that this area paid more taxes than Chichester or Brighton. It was quite important at the time. But we think that they were boat builders, really, that did the route. Yeah, it looks like the hull. It looks like a hull of a ship. ship. Mm. It is possible that it was originally a pagan site. So natural features of springs were used as holy sites. So the nook hole, I suspect, was there prior to the the, the church. Yeah, Yeah. right. And that could be another reason why... And the church was was built here. Now that would make sense that the knuckle hole was sort of a pagan, a holy well. I do love a holy well. <laughs> he does. He I does. do love a holy well. We're always collecting samples. So originally, the Saxon village would have been in the field, going down towards Arundel. Arundel had a port, and all the ships would have been moored up and uh, had their goods loaded. So certainly, some of the fields are named Church Fleet. For instance, mm. so the river's still there. The river's changed the river somewhat, I think. It, it would have been larger, so yeah. there is a stream a half a mile or so down the road from here to Amring, and originally ships would have gone down there. So a lot of network of boats. Which probably would have carried on till fairly recently, oh. really. Certainly a few hundred years mm. ago, uh, we would have still had tall ships. Yeah. Can I think of them this far inland? Oh, yes. Mm. That size. size and scale. Yeah. We'd better get out of the way of the cleaners. Yeah. Well, thank you. Do you know when the window was actually made? I think it's relatively recent. It doesn't look like an old no. No, it doesn't. window. But what's quite interesting is the image of the knucker of the, the serpent. Mm. I've seen that used yeah. in film. Something like Ken Russell's Lair of the White Worm takes that image and puts it in the church in the okay. film. I don't know where it was filmed, actually, do you? I think it was up Cumbria way. Ah, uh, did that. Yeah. So you're ready for the very lively dogs? Oh, oh yes, always yes, ready for yes. dogs. Hello. Hello. Oh, yeah. Well, let's hope you. <laughs> I slung it in the oven, and it's been there ever since. We made it too. Folkland written, created and presented by Tim Downey and Justin Chubb with music by Justin Special thanks to Ray and Mike and to Dr Paul Quinn For more information on Paul's work go to www.chai.ac.uk
Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.